So one afternoon in uh, April 2018, Raul Rodriguez was working at his computer at the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol office in uh, Texas that he worked at. And when two managers entered the building and he thought, well, somebody must be in trouble. Uh, managers usually only arrived when uh, they needed a witness because they were going to call somebody into the office and fire them. Now, this comes from a story in The Atlantic that I read. Uh, so Raul wasn't concerned that he was in trouble because he had a spotless record. Not only was his record spotless, but he epitomized the integrity of his role as a Customs and Border Patrol agent. In fact, he won their Integrity Award and was flown all the way out to D.C. to receive it with honor. Raul grew up in Texan, in Texas as a Mexican-American, and he always uh, admired Border Patrol growing up. He loved their crisp uniforms and really admired the authority that they carried. When he grew up, he served a stint in the U.S. Navy, and then he trained for his dream job, which he eventually got uh, as a Customs and Border Patrol agent. He followed the letter of the law to a T, to the point where he disconnected himself from family members who were undocumented. During his career, he facilitated the deportation of thousands of Mexicans. And one day when he was buying cigarettes at a local store, a woman approached him and asked him if she could bribe him to allow her to smuggle a child through his lane across the border. He took her number, he took the bribe, and then he set up a sting operation. And as soon as she and the child crossed his lane, they were both arrested. So this guy didn't mess around. So when these managers entered his office, he was surprised to hear them call him over. He was even more surprised to receive an envelope containing a letter informing him that he was no longer a Border Patrol agent and he was no longer employed, just two years shy of receiving his pension. A few days later, he sat in a federal building where they told him that his career in immigration as a military uh, officer, uh, his identity as a veteran, his identity as an agent, and as an American, were all based on a lie. You see, it had been discovered that Raul, who had thought that he was born in Texas, was actually born in Mexico. Raul called his dad up to set up a meeting, because this couldn't be true, right? So he set up a meeting with his dad and uh, these federal officers so that his dad could set it straight. But in that meeting, his dad hung his head low and confessed that his parents had bribed a midwife to falsify his birth certificate in the U.S. so that their son could be a U.S. citizen and that he never told Raul. Raul grew up thinking that he was a U.S. citizen when in fact he was a citizen of Mexico. He spent his best years and efforts protecting the very border that he himself had illegally crossed. Can you imagine the shock? Can you imagine the crisis that ensued in his life? Raul looked like an American. He talked like an American. He protected American waters in the Navy. He protected the American border as a uh, CPP officer. And most of all, his father told him that he was a legal, documented citizen. But his citizenship was of an entirely different country. Now he drives his streets careful, always to stop at every stop sign, always to use his blinker, since one traffic stop could mean deportation for him. And in pursuit to maintain his integrity, he's committed to applying for citizenship in a legal way and uh, to accept deportation if it ever knocks on his door. For Raul, it's black and white. He either is a citizen of the U.S. or he's not. And the determining factor for him was a birth certificate, which turned out to be a lie. 
So whether or not he was aware of the lie didn't change the reality of the nation that he belonged to. There are two countries, and he either belongs to one or to the other. There's no way he can change all the years that are behind him. He is now an undocumented Mexican seeking citizenship in the USA, just like the many people that he deported. He thought he belonged. He thought he was an insider, but he was rudely awakened. And we're going to see something similar play out in our passage today, only instead of a nation, we're talking about a family. Who's in? Who's out? What gets a person in? What keeps a person out? And what happens when you've lived your entire life as an insider, when you've done all the right things, attended all the events, only to receive an invitation from your so-called brother to finally join the family, as if you'd never been part of it from the beginning? This is what's going to play out in John 8, 31 through 59. And if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and uh, turn to it. I believe it's page 894 in the black ones under the seat. Now, the book of John is written like a story. It's what we call narrative uh, literature in the Bible. John is telling one big story, and within that big story, there are little vignettes, little stories. And we're picking up in a passage that ends one of these vignettes. Clint started it two weeks ago when he preached in chapter 7. Kevin took the middle of it when he preached the beginning of chapter 8. And today we're going to take the end of it uh, as we close out chapter 8. Jesus has come to the temple with many Jews on pilgrimage to celebrate the Feast of Booths, which commemorates the 40-year period that Israel wandered in the desert after being freed by God from Egyptian slavery. They were wandering because of their own reluctance to trust God to get him to the land that he had promised to give them. And during this period, they lived in tents or booths, which is why it's called the Feast of Booths. And you can find that story in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament in your Bible. Jewish people actually celebrate this to this date. It's called Sukkot most of the time. Uh, in chapter 7, Jesus is in the temple on the last day of this feast. In verse 37, he says to people, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So as Clint taught, this was right around the annual water drawing ceremony where the priest would draw water from the pool of Siloam and pour it on the altar and they would pray to God that he would send rain so they could have a fruitful harvest. Jesus is saying that he can give something greater than the water. And the conversation ends with people seeking to kill Jesus as it so often does. In the beginning of chapter 8, Jesus is still in this temple and he declares, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is all happening in the court of women, also called the treasury, where each corner uh, there was a lampstand, and it was lit day and night, especially during festivals like the one he was at. And Jesus is pointing to those, and he's saying, he is the true light. So the imagery is powerful, and the statements are profound. And as usual, the result is that many think that he's a liar, and they want to kill him. But still, some do believe in him. And this is where our story picks up, where Jesus begins to address these new believers. And just keep the setting in mind that all of this is happening in the temple of God. All of this is happening in God's house. You can see it uh, on the slide. Uh, he's in the treasury, the court of women. It's an area where only Jewish people were allowed, just outside the area where men would go in and bring their sacrifices. So this is a family conversation. 
It's an insider conversation in the house of God, not witnessed by people who are not uh, part of the Jewish race and faith. So Jesus has essentially called this family meeting, and now he's going to give some new categories as it pertains to the family of God. Let's pick it up in uh, chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In all his teaching in the temple, Jesus has a lot of people who want to kill him, right? But he's also picked up a few people who believe in him, who believe what he's saying about himself. But there's still more for them to know about Jesus. See, there's depth to who Jesus is. He said a lot of things about himself, and it's not enough to simply believe one thing and not the other and call yourself a disciple or follower of Jesus. Jesus is telling these new believers that to truly be his disciples— to truly be his followers, they have to abide. They have to remain in his word, in his teaching. A true follower of Jesus accepts all of Jesus. They don't just take one part of his teaching or one part of his personality that resonates with them. If we're talking extremes, this looks like an unrepented, uh, unrepented uh, aggressive people, like loving Jesus that flips over the tables, right? Because he justifies their own lack of self-control. Or passive people who just love the Jesus that says, turn the other cheek because he justifies their avoidance of conflict. Or uh, social justice warriors who love the Jesus that feeds the hungry and heals the sick. Or legalists who love the Jesus only who's coming back to judge the world. Which Jesus do you love? Do you love the real whole Jesus? Or the fragmented, distorted Jesus who's simply made up of your cause or your personality or your passions. You can find the real Jesus in the Bible. Learn about him and love all of him. Otherwise, you're loving a lie. And that's really the foundation of the argument that's about to take place. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And verse 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So abide in his word and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. All the way back uh, to John chapter 1, John opens his gospel saying that Jesus is full of grace and truth. A few chapters after this in chapter 14, Jesus is going to call himself the truth. The truth will set you free. Free from what? Right? That's what these believers want to know, these new believers. In fact, they're confused and a little frustrated at the fact that Jesus is implying that they need freedom at all. Here's how they respond in verse 33. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? You've got the wrong people. You should know better, Jesus, because you're one of us, right? He's Jewish, just like them. He should know their history. He should know their connection with God. Now, they're not saying that they've never been subjected to uh, physical slavery. They're not ignorant of their history. If there's one thing they know, it is their history. I mean, right now they're celebrating a feast that commemorates 40 years after being freed from being slaves to the Egyptians. They're talking about spiritual freedom, and they're talking about spiritual ownership. And in the end, they're really talking about spiritual fatherhood. Whose are they? We're Abraham's offspring. We're the children of promise. See, back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, God graciously plucks a man named Abraham from a godless people, and he says, I will be your God. And he makes a promise. 
In Genesis 17, 6, he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This is the heritage of the Jewish people. This is the origin of God's relationship with them. It's through Abraham. He will be their God. So how is Jesus coming to them and offering to set them free? That offer is to question their relationship to Abraham and to really question their relationship to God himself. Jesus responds to them with this in verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And in the next verse, he names one of their sins that they want to murder him now. So Jesus is in an argument with these guys, but he's really trying to help them through an identity crisis. They think that because they're ethnically descended from Abraham, that they're literally grandfathered into the family of God, that they're spiritually liberated. But the fact is, freedom comes only one way. An entry into the household of God only comes one way and through one person. And Jesus says that it's through the Son of God. Freedom is given by the Son to those who truly believe in him, who believe in all of him, those who know the truth. The Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians, written long after these events and uh, has the privilege of retrospect, it adds some helpful clarification. If you look at uh, Galatians 3.16, Paul says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Further down in verse 29, he says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. See, all those promises culminated in the person of Jesus, and access to the promise and to the Father come through him, whether a person's Jewish or non-Jewish. The argument continues to heat up after this, and Jesus and his Jewish listeners, uh, the hotter their argument gets, the more we learn about Jesus, the more we learn about the people that he's talking to. Look with me in verse 38. It says, I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Again, Jesus is pointing out that there are two families here. He's speaking the words that God the Father has given him. He's been in the presence of the Father, and he tells them that their behavior is representative of who their Father really is. The longer you're in a family, the more you look like that family, right? They say husbands and wives start to look like each other. People grow up and they say, I can't believe I said that. I sound like my mother. I sound like my father. We can't avoid it. It just comes out, right? Jesus is telling them, your rejection of the truth, your rejection of me, and your desire to kill me, reveal who your true father is. And of course, they repeat themselves in verse 39 and defensively say that Abraham is their father. And then it escalates to the point where they say, no, we have one father. It's God. Jesus responds with this. If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. 
I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And then in verse 47, he deals them the final blow. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. There are two families, Jesus says. And even though your pedigree would suggest that you're part of God's family, your actions reveal that you're really enslaved. Enslaved to sin, influenced, raised, lied to by an abusive father who hides the truth and desires your own ruin. There's no in-between with Jesus. I might not be a murderer, and uh, maybe I wouldn't have even struck up an argument with Jesus in this way, but before I believed in him, before he set me free, I was a slave. No matter how good I was, no matter how much I uh, told myself lies about who God was and uh, how I could have a relationship with him apart from Jesus, I was enslaved. And you see, the thing about uh, the devil is that we think of him like he's this horned beast holding a pitchfork. And I don't know, maybe he's taken that form before, but in reality, he's much more subtle and much more dangerous. Uh, Puritan William Gurnall puts it well. He says this, If men have an apparition of the devil or hear a noise in the night, they cry, the devil, the devil, and are ready to run out of their wits for fear. But they carry him in their hearts. And they walk all the day long in his company and fear him not. When your proud heart is clamoring up to the pinnacle of honor in your ambitions, ambitious thoughts, who sets you there but the devil? When your adulterous heart is big with all manner of uncleanness and filthiness, who but Satan has been there? When you're raging in your passion, throwing burning coals of wrath and fury about with your inflamed tongue, where was it set on fire but of hell? When you're hurried like the swine into the precipice and even choked with your own drunken vomit, who but the devil rides you? Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Bruce Milne says it this way. He is the savior only of the desperate who have nowhere else to turn and no other on which to call. There are two families, and those among the church need to be just as introspective as those outside, asking themselves, which family do I belong to? These were new believers that Jesus was talking to. They go from believing in him, to questioning his identity, to insulting him, to eventually trying to kill him. So Jesus has now dealt this final blow to these uh, Jews standing in the temple of God by calling them children of the devil and telling them that they're not of God. Their true identity is revealed by their rejection of his offer to free them and to welcome them into the family of God. And now Jesus's identity is going to come into question, and that's going to result in a greater revelation of who he is. So the Jews in the temple respond to Jesus with sort of an, I know you are, but what am I type of argument. Did anybody have that type of argument when you were a kid? Pee Wee Herman style, like, I know you are, but what am I? He calls, the children of the, he calls them children of the devil. And so, of course, they respond to him by saying, Are we not right that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? 
Now, Samaritans were a mixed race with ties to Jewish lineage, and they held the notion that the Jewish priesthood in Israel and the temple of Israel were illegitimate. So Jews avoided them at all costs. Calling Jesus a Samaritan was almost the equivalent of using a racial slur. Because Jesus had called into question their lineage, they're now calling into question his. And because he's now called them children of the devil, of course, they're going to accuse him of being possessed by a demon. And he responds with this in verse 49. He says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Now by dishonoring Jesus, they're dishonoring God. They're dishonoring the very father that they said is their one father. Jesus says, I'm not out for my own glory. The net translation of the Bible translates this as, I'm not seeking my own praise. And he's not. This whole ordeal began with an offer from Jesus to the Jews to be free and to be family. But there is one who seeks his glory, and that is his father. And he will be the judge between them. They're on the receiving end of judgment from the father that they claim is theirs because that judge is out for the glory of Jesus. As bad as the insults get, Jesus extends another invitation with a promise. He says in verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. Jesus is the one who sets us free, not just from enslavement, sin, and a heritage of evil, but his promise is that his followers will never see death. And this is an echo of what he said throughout John's gospel. Even think back to the famous John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. This is Jesus' message. And the Jews said to him in verse 52, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will not taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? To make a blanket promise of preservation from death is a huge claim. That's not the type of claim that prophets have ever made. Jesus is claiming that he has authority over life. He's making a heavenly claim. It's also a claim that he himself won't see death. Who are you making yourself out to be? Because within their religious grid, with what they know about prophets and priests, Jesus doesn't fit into either one of those categories with that type of authority. Jesus answered them, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now again, Jesus denies this accusation that he's attempting to glorify himself. He's not. God the Father is seeking his glory, and he sent him for that purpose. Jesus has taken the posture of a servant, and an incarnate invitation, an invitation to the Jewish people to truly be part of the family of God. And he's speaking the truth to them. And he's a delight to both of the persons that they claim are their fathers. God seeks his glory. Abraham rejoiced that he would see his day because Jesus is the culmination of God's promise to Abraham. So in verse 57, 
says, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, the more heated the dialogue gets, the more we learn about Jesus and the more we learn about the Jews in this passage. The Jews say, how can you have seen Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And in such a simple statement, so much is said. Jesus has claimed all spiritual authority, the power to set us free from enslavement. He's claimed authority over death, and now he's claiming to be eternal. And the way that he claimed to be eternal is not just to say that he existed before Abraham. It's not that he said, before Abraham was, I was. He said, before Abraham was, I am. As in, the great I am. Ego eimi in the original Greek. A very particular way that God chose to reveal his name in the Old Testament. And they would have recognized it from their Greek text that they had of the Old Testament at the time. When Moses speaks to God at the burning bush and God is sending him uh, to set his people free from Egyptian slavery, Moses asks, what name should I give them? God says this in Exodus 3.14. God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. This, this is why they picked up stones to throw at him. Jesus claimed to be I am the immortal and invisible God in human flesh, the liberator of the captives, the God of Israel, the creator of the universe. Don't be fooled into thinking that you can straddle the line between heaven and hell. There are two families. There's one way, there's one truth, there's one life, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is God, the gracious liberator, who took on human flesh, died to free us from sin and Satan, to welcome us into the family of God, to spare us from the ultimate curse of sin, which is death. He's invited us into eternal life. We are all needy creatures who desperately need that freedom, that family, that life. We desperately need Jesus. His invitation into the family of God isn't contingent on our birth certificate or a pedigree it's not dependent on knowing the right words to say, attending church enough Sundays per year. We know we're part of God's family if we love Jesus, all of Jesus. So let's listen to the words of Jesus and let's ask ourselves, am I abiding in his word? Am I walking in the truth? Have I been set free? Because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Let's pray.